people. Welcome to Prometically Laid Bear, the podcast. Today, my guest is Blair. Blair works at Aries, and I've been around for, for a while, and I've always heard of Aries. So it's an old firm, which seems to be in private debt. And so it looks like private debt started long ago. And so maybe, Blair, if you can tell us a bit about the, the history of, of Aries and, and what you guys uh, do. Um, and thank you for being here. Great. Uh, thanks, Lord. Happy to. Um, Today, Aries is a group manages around 200 billion of assets. We're a large diversified alternatives manager. However, as you said, uh, our core and largest businesses are in sub-investment grade corporate credit, um, and in particular, private debt and middle market direct lending, which is really about half of what we do. We trace the roots uh, of the firm back to the early 1990s. Uh, when Aries was incubated as the credit arm uh, of another alternative manager. We gained our independence uh, around 2000 uh, and continued to grow meaningfully from there. But you're right, we've been involved in the private credit markets for well over 20 years. And so that's what confuses me because we, we had this previous podcast with, with James who, who, and, and that's the usual story about private debt showed up after the financial crisis. Uh, because the banks didn't want to lend anymore, but then you guys have been around forever. So what were you doing before 2008? So that's a great question. Um, I listened to the James interview, and I think his perspective was a bit more of a European perspective. Um, Aries was founded in the US uh, in Los Angeles, and the perspective on private credit from the United States is it has been around for a very, very long time time. And it's not simply uh, an outgrowth of what happened from the financial crisis. In fact, if you look back probably 30 years or so, in the 1990s in the US, the banking sector went through a very, very significant merger and acquisition uh, and consolidation wave. And what wound up happening was all these banks got together. They got a lot bigger. And when that happened, basically they started financing larger and larger companies, but they left the middle market behind. And there's some really interesting statistics there. For example, the top five banks today in the United States hold over 50% of banking assets. Go back to 1990, the top five banks were less than 10%. You know, some of the really big banks like Bank of America, that's like 12 plus big banks merged. JP Morgan Chase, more than seven big banks merged. So again, the dynamic was that there was a big gap uh, to fill in the market and that, in and the that's US, and that's the, what happened. And that's, is it because the bank is becoming bigger when they say, okay, we cannot be bothered with small stuff anymore? Is it like really how it works? That's that's indeed what we saw, yeah. Amazing. And so. So then you, you guys had space already back there and then you were doing what then? Do you, uh, were you doing uni tranches back then or how, what, what kind of things were offered in the US in the 90s and 2000s? Yeah, sure. So, so what happened was, um, you know, number one, the US is a, it's a large country. It is a massive market. Unlike some of the other markets we'll talk about today, there's a single currency, there's a single bankruptcy code. So there's a lot of opportunity created through this consolidation wave. And as a result, um, BDCs uh, started. Again, those are sort of government-sanctioned, tax-advantaged, publicly listed loan vehicles. 
There were also private debt funds created. Probably early as well, there were insurance companies that would uh, buy these assets directly. There's even a middle market CLO market, which we don't really see anywhere else in the world. It just shows the size and maturity. But way back then, um, a lot of it was BDC driven, some institutional investor driven. And I'd say where Aries made its name very, very early on, I think we take some pride uh, because we believe we invented uh, this unitronch market um, that you're speaking of and that James described uh, on the last podcast. And, and, and so you started unitronches as early like in the 2000s or? Correct, early 2000s. And that was your main product? Yeah, I think Aries' general view as a group and in particular in private credit is we do try to be flexible so we can do lots of different things, whatever is best for the company and their stakeholders that meets our own risk return requirements. But yes, Unitronch became a very, very significant part of our business. Okay, and so I guess Aries was number one in the US already in the 2000s. And then what made them come to Europe, I believe even before the financial crisis when Jim said, you know, there was no problem before financial crisis. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question because back then you're right. Um, middle market commercial banks literally had 100% market share in this first lien lending. And I think as James said, there were some mezzanine funds who had come in behind banks when companies wanted a little bit more leverage. But again, Unitronch didn't, didn't exist. Now, I will and tell you that- And these mezzanine funds didn't exist in the US, right? So in the US, you, 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 you didn't have them. So in Europe, we had kind of private debt ancestors, but it was really like these mezzanine people and not many of them and they got burned exactly. during the crisis. But so you came in in Europe. Yeah, so you, we, we came in, in Europe. Well, so we came in in Europe and maybe just to spend a moment on it, um, we did not have a crystal ball. Um, we entered the market um, uh, in direct lending in 2007, pre-financial crisis. Obviously after that, the crisis was a huge way to turbocharge our business. But at that time, you know, Aries is a business building type firm looking for opportunities. And at the time, again, it wasn't obvious because nobody else was doing it. However, what we did know is that Europe has a lot of great middle market companies. Europe has a very, very well-developed and mature private equity market, and they are large consumers of leveraged finance. And I think thirdly, by bringing over a product like Unitronch, which again was described, I think, pretty well, you know, banks might tap out at 30 or 40% loan to value. We might get more comfortable with a single instrument going through 50% or 60% loan to value cost more, but again, that's the company's decision, whether that's attractive for them or not. But we did feel that that was going to be a differentiated offering in the market. You know, little did we know that the financial crisis was around the corner that again would really accelerate our, our opportunity set. Nice. And so how would you characterize and nowadays the European market versus the US one? How did the US also accelerate it after the 2008 crisis and Europe is kind of catching up and getting to the same place as the US? What, what would be the difference? Yeah, I think that's a fair, a fair comment. I, I'd make a couple of, of observations. Again, the US market, it's a good market. Uh, it's mature, it's large, it's a single currency. But going to what I had said a little bit earlier, um, it's at a point where institutional investors probably have 90% market share versus the banking system. And what that means is it is a very competitive and crowded market 
Um, I'd say by our estimation, there are something like 150 direct lending managers. There are 50 of these publicly listed business development companies. There are even over 100 middle market CLOs, which again is something we never even see in Europe, uh, at least at this point. So it's a large and mature market. And I think what that has led to perhaps is a little bit of muting of um, returns in that market compared to other parts of the world, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to. Uh, it's probably led to a little bit looser uh, documentation and lender protections, nothing terrible. Uh, but again, in, in, in the US for companies 50, 75 million PBTA, it's not that uncommon for the best ones to be done on a covenant light basis, where again, we'll, we'll get to it, but in Europe, you really don't see it all that much. So again, US is a great market, but it does show some of the signs, both positive um, and, and some considerations around its maturity profile. Yeah, it, it, it seems it's always the case that, that, that the US is just like Europe, but wilder. Like it, it, they always take more risk. Things are always like, you know, they, they, they play closer to the fence, it, it feels, right? Sail closer to the wind, or yeah. Indeed. And, um, and so, and for, for, for Asia, then you guys have, have gone this way as well re recently, so um, going global. Yeah, so again, we started in the US in the early 2000s, came to Europe in 2007. In Asia is definitely a bit more of a nascent market and Aries got involved in the private credit markets there through an acquisition we made uh, about a year, 18 months ago, about a 7 billion AUM business. Now, this group, however, had been around uh, since 2009. So, you know, a lot of experience and they're in many, many different countries. So I'd say with Asia in particular, it's a little bit hard to generalize, again, because each country is a bit different, but I can make some, some comments there. I think when we think about Asia as a market, it's still something like 75% bank-driven. So again, uh, direct lending is still very much in the minority. And to compare, in Europe today, we sort of think that direct lenders and banks each have roughly 50% market share, although it varies. Yeah, it varies a little bit by, by country. Uh, that said, this non-bank lending space we think is growing about 15% per year. So we're, we're, we're sort of gaining uh, each and every year. But when we look at Asia, you know, a couple of, a couple of thoughts. Um, the banking sector, in our estimation, is at a bit of a competitive disadvantage there. And this is one of the reasons why we think things will grow. A lot of the banks uh, in Asia, for example, um, they're state-owned, quite bureaucratic, uh, quite slow. If you compare that to how private lenders operate, we think we have a very, very clear value proposition. And again, a lot of the bank lending is more to larger corporates, state-owned company. And it's almost like a policy directive that yeah, that is- Yeah, there also be some, some, some favors and, 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 and things like that, right? They, like relationship, but in like literal case. And so maybe there is a, a case for somebody to come in and say, I don't care about your relationship. I'm going to look at your fundamentals and that may you know, create an arbitrage for you, no? Yeah, and, that's, and I think that's, that's what we've found. Again, it'll vary a little bit by um, geography, but again, th there are even certain sectors that the banks find completely off limits, like short-term working capital financing in, in China has to be renewed every year. In India, banks can't lend 
to the real estate sector or finance, local m and I mean, they're just a lot of restrictions. And if you're smart and you have local people who've been in those markets a long time, they know the stakeholders, you can build a really nice, nice business there. And I think the observation we've seen is on a relative basis, Asia probably has some of the strongest lender protections for private lenders, very tight documentation. Part of that is that despite the fact that there is a a fairly good sized private equity market in Asia, which I'm sure you're aware, probably more of the deals in Asia compared to Europe and the US are family owned, yeah, non-sponsored deals. Yes, right. So, so then it means you also land in unsponsored deals, right? A lot in Asia. And, and again, from a documentation perspective, you have to be very, very tight. You need pledges over everything, property, assets, shares, um, so I'd say on, on average, those loans are a bit tighter in terms of documentation, but also from a risk return perspective, um, certainly on the return side, you know, we would seek to make a couple hundred basis points higher return in Asia for a roughly equivalent loan, certainly than what we would see in Europe or the US. In Europe and the US, Europe might be a little bit uh, higher on the risk return scale, not not a lot, but there's a decent size gap. Then when you look at when you look at what we're seeing in Asia, yeah, because it, it, it uh, I was going to say that that it, it, when casually for 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 me, I'm I'm not as close to to you, but like casually, the, the banks lending in Asia, even for multinational companies and the like, the interest rates are super high, hmm. and, and it's always a puzzle that like why a, a global company that is located in India can hardly raise any any debt, and if they just relocate their headquarters to the U.S., same company, same market, same you know global exposure, then suddenly they can borrow like sixty percent of, of their, their asset values um, because now they are based in the U.S. It's, it 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 feels a bit strange. So you know you could say well it's because of creator protection, but I'm not sure creators are that well protected in the U.S., especially you know like some documentations in particularly loose, and and so. It's always hard to understand why yeah. when you're in, in, in a country like this, when suddenly people tell you, oh yeah, but it's hard to borrow. And you're like, why? Yeah, I, I think there is some arbitrage there. For example, you know, we've been approached by some of these diversified conglomerates in particular in India who are looking to get financing uh, out of the UK. I think where we struggle sometimes is if the assets are indeed uh, in India, just enforcement if things get challenging can, can, can be a bit difficult. But I think... What's important to consider is again the local regulations that they do face. You know, they're all different. Not only do the local banks have to deal with the Basel regime, that's that's global and frankly makes it less interesting for banks to lend. But more importantly, again, the security packages uh, can be different. The ability to enforce uh, can be different, and it, and it, sometimes there is some arbitrage on that elsewhere in the world. And is then the next step, so, so 2000 in the US, 2007 in Europe, and 10 years later, Asia. So in five, six years, you go like Africa or what uh, does the next step? Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I think we're still, uh, frankly, we're still digesting. There's still a lot of organic growth we're finding in, in each of our core markets. I think we are always questioning what is that next step? And in particular, as it relates to emerging markets, we have to remember, you know, we are lenders after all. We do want to make sure that documentation is robust, 
court systems and, 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 and lender protections are robust. Because again, our, our whole goal in life is don't lose money. Yeah, you know, we're not yeah, the equities. Yeah. We don't have this, this asymmetric upside. And I think th- there is a school of thought that says the, the more you get into the emerging markets, the more your debt looks a little bit more like equity. And that's something we're always um, uh, considering. However, on the contra, you've also seen some countries improve. And actually we've seen this in certain European uh, uh, countries. Um, we saw it uh, in, in India as well. They've actually improved lender rights. So they've been proactive. They understand that this capital is out there and valuable, but they have to make some changes before it becomes a mainstream attractive place to do business. What's an example of something that is really key for lender rights and you don't see in other countries? What is it like? Sure. Um, it can be something, it's not simple. It's actually quite complicated. But for example, the, the insolvency regime, you know, again, if a company is in violation uh, of its credit documents, either from a covenant perspective or a payment perspective, what is the path uh, for a lender to exercise their rights? Um, what can be done by the borrower? Also, very importantly, how long does that take? In any restructuring situation, I, would, I always say time is your enemy because you need to do things as soon as possible. But if there are regimes where it takes two years with companies being zombies in limbo uh, while the lenders try to take enforcement actions, that's a real problem. And again, in an asset class where you know, getting real par recoveries is so critical to our returns and you know, to ourselves and our investors, that's something we don't, we don't take lightly. So what we've seen is we've seen some um, developments to streamline those restructuring regimes. The other thing I would comment on is how are different stakeholders' uh, claims um, valued? Um, what weight of importance are they given? For example, there are some countries in, in Europe, which you may be aware of, where, for example, the, the employees of the company uh, are basically treated as a, as a meaningful stakeholder when you know they don't have a, a financial risk directly in in the business and again you know things that make it easier and more effective for us to lend money and importantly get it back are viewed very favorably by groups like Aries I see and um, in, you were look, talking about the new frontiers I mean when we talked a bit of, with James he was saying that because you guys are becoming so big you can also go higher in the spectrum of sizes, right? That nowadays you can lend mm-hmm. 1 billion to someone. Um, so, so, so that seems to be a natural progression. And also when you're so big, the same way as you said, you know, the banks were getting bigger and they couldn't be bothered with small guys. I guess nowadays for, for you guys to sign a $50 million check is like boring and, and too costly even. Uh, we still do that. Um, I'd make two comments. One is um, we are, uh, real observers of what we call the convergence between the private and the in the public or liquid credit markets. Again, started in the U.S. Uh, however, it has come over to Europe, and you know, we've been on the forefront of that. We've done a handful of deals with you know over a billion of of loan value. You know, the challenge though is, if I were to do that to make say you know six percent on the loan when I tell my investors I want to do better, it really doesn't help. Um, so I still need strong return profile, very good risk profile. And again, if I find a deal that doesn't match it, it's not a good fit for us. So I, I do view that um, as a bit more of an opportunistic opportunity set. However, what I would tell you is we're seeing more of it today, certainly than we did three, four, five years ago. And then the other challenge which you make is, a, is, is, is an important one, which is to say, well, we cannot forget where we came from, 
we still need to have relationships and lend to small businesses because a lot of what we do is we help small businesses become big businesses. You know, we have a, a company in the UK. Um, we made our first loan when the company about 5 million of profit or EBITDA. Today, it's close to 100. And we've been with it the whole time. Different capital structures, making acquisitions, uh, two different private equity owners. And for us, that's really good uh, business to stay with these companies. So we, we can't forget where we came from. I think the other thing we're really focused on is giving our investors very diversified portfolios, because obviously credit's asymmetric. Um, so, you know, having lots of, of positions in our funds is, is super critical and having smaller deals complement some of the bigger ones is a, is a key way that we do that. I see, because indeed, like, and this crisis showed that if you had a portfolio that was mainly concentrated in retail, I guess it would have been a bit difficult, right? Retail, leisure, et cetera, it would be tricky. Very difficult. And, and this is, but this is where traditionally the lending would be at, right? Because in practically deals like, Practically did okay because one third of their portfolio were like software related, right? And this did very well and the rest was more in trouble. But the lenders don't lend too much against software and the like, right? So you were probably a bit more into the, the leisure part of private equity no. and the like, which is the one which was in the pressure, no? It's interesting um, just because this is a very topical current conversation. I think of sectors in three buckets. The first is stuff that's done very well through COVID. That's telecommunications, healthcare software, niche business services, even things like wealth management and insurance brokerage. And by the way, we have a lot of exposure to those sectors. On the other end of the spectrum are really cyclical um, sectors and end markets, automotive, energy, high fashion, you know, retail, things like you've said. That's an area that we've historically shied away from. Now, what really needed help was this middle uh, bucket, which are businesses which are economically resilient, but not made for lockdown. That would include things like dentistry, uh, mm -hmm. veterinary care, children's mm -hmm. care, nurseries, even to some extent, pubs, gyms, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the good news is, look, those were closed in lockdown 1.0 here in Europe. Um, but when they reopened uh, last summer, they quickly rebounded very, very very, very strongly. So I think what you're seeing, which is interesting is the businesses in that first bucket, everyone's running to those now because they're quite defensive. So you have to be very careful and pick your spots on the risk reward side there. Excellent. And maybe another frontier that I wanted to know if you guys explore a bit is how about looking at, at becoming also managers of companies? So when when you have a crisis, especially like this one, often the equity holder is in trouble. Technically, the company should come back to you. And then people say, well, all these things are complicated because the debt holders cannot really run companies. Banks certainly cannot. But you guys seem to be so big and so experienced that it feels that you know, from a regulator point of view, you may be a safer hand as a debt provider because if a company was in trouble and then would go to you, you would be able to manage it. While if it goes into the hand of a bank, it's trouble. Is that fair? Is that... Yeah, I think here's how I would frame it and, and echoing what I'd said a little bit earlier. Um, our goal in life for our investors is don't lose money. So if we make a loan and the company does not perform as expected, we like to sort that out ourselves. We don't sell our loan in a block to a distress fund or, or what have you and have them capture that value from where we sell it back to par. We, we do that ourselves. 
And the way that we do that is we have invested significantly in our business, both in Europe and the US in particular, in having basically dedicated workout teams with indirect lending. Oh, so, wow. so you're we, behaving like a practical guy, right? You, well, you, it's not our goal in life. Our goal in life is to have a loan. You know, we get our fee and interest and company gets sold, we get our money back. But if things don't go as we think, you know, again, that's why we have covenants. That's why we have rights to step in before there's value diminution in the businesses that could ultimately impact our ability to get our money back. And we're not afraid to take the keys if we have to. It's usually consensual, by the way, as you said, a lot of the time, private equity, maybe they put in money uh, one or two more times, but they're not going to put infinite capital in. And the way I, I always frame it is, if a company's bought, say, for 200 million pounds, usually uh, we're roughly 50% loan to value. What that means is private equity's put in 100 and we've put in 100. Now, obviously, our break-even point is completely different from theirs. Yeah. So there can be real value diminution and we just have to get the company back to hundred. They yeah. got to get the company back to 200. Mm -hmm. And again, the question for them is always how much money do they have to put in the business to make that happen, which is different from our view of the world. So what I would tell you is um, we do have the ability and have in the past taken over companies when the equity is sort of walked away and that's okay. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Blair. Um, I know these are very busy times for you, so 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 thank you so much for walking us around the, the, the world in, in private equity and private debt, uh, especially. Um, so this was uh, private debt, the, the global version uh, laid bare. Don't forget to subscribe and and to rate it if you liked it. And congratulations on your acquisition of one more piece of knowledge. Ciao, ciao. <laughs>